You know, uh, when Pastor James was telling me about that song that Chet just played uh, last week, I said, no, I don't think I've ever heard that. But once you started playing, I recognized it, and I appreciate it. That was great. Uh, I, I was debating in my head. I said, well, I'm not reading the Beatitudes. But I thought, okay, well, Chet's going to sing them, so that's good. So let's pray one more time. Lord Almighty, your eye is on the sparrow. And if your eye is concerned about something so small, then we are going to be that much more of concern to you. I pray that your eye would be upon us even now for our good, that Lord, you would remove from us those distractions that would keep us from hearing and obeying your word. And Lord, that you would cause us to long to hear your word so that we would be the men and women of God that you have created us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The San Francisco Federal Reserve recently reported that people who live in rich neighborhoods are most more likely to commit suicide. Now there's more to that story. If you are one who makes above 75,000, suicide rates drop. But for those who make less than 34,000, suicide rates jump by 50%. I know, happy topic, right? It is the people who make in between this and who live in rich neighborhoods that are more likely to hang themselves. But here's the kicker. If you make somewhere between 34,000 and 102,000, the actual rate of suicides is only a few percentage points. In other words, there isn't a lot of difference. The Fed is making a big deal about a few percentage points. But here's my point. All else being equal, for example, not having Christ as your Savior and Lord, being very poor depresses the spirit, sometimes even to the point of suicide, but so does believing that you are poor relative to those who are around you. For example, a poor man living in a rich neighborhood. But, as is often true, when we turn to the good news, what we find is that the good news turns upside down exactly what the world believes. Tonight we're going to learn that unmasking your spiritual poverty reveals extravagant living abundance. Do you want to have riches that the 102,000 people don't even dream of? Riches that will get you into spiritually, will get you spiritually through life and eternity? Then this sermon is for you. But before we can get to the individual Beatitudes, which we're going to do tonight, we need to lay a couple more foundation stones so that we can stand on the remarkable promises that Jesus gives us. The first stone that we are going to look at is that the Beatitudes do not describe eight different people. There's eight Beatitudes, but it's not describing eight different people. These Beatitudes collectively are a description of what Christ's disciples, what His friends actually look like. Last week, R.W. Glenn commented that the Beatitudes are a kind of litmus test. 
like other passages, for example, 1 Corinthians 13, Galatians 5, 22 and 23, 2 Peter 1, 5 through 8, and many others. Those passages are in your notes if you want to look at them later. Like the Beatitudes, they point at the difference between disciples and non-Christians. They are like a litmus test that points out the difference between acids and bases. Note, for example, just one, in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 and 5, Paul writes, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not arrogant or rude, it does not insist on its own way, it is not irritable or resentful. What we find here is a litmus test, is a test so that when you are patient or kind, etc., you are in that moment, in fact, being loving. You are loving the person in front of you. So you ask yourself, am I being kind in this moment? If you are being kind to that person, you are giving him or her an incomplete, imperfect, but nevertheless true picture of Christ as his representative on earth. You are Christ's representative by loving them by being kind. Likewise, you can ask yourself, am I a child of the kingdom whose reign of God is at hand? So then ask yourself, am I being poor in spirit? If you are, then you are giving those who are around you an incomplete and imperfect, but nevertheless true picture of Christ as his representative on earth. You are Christ's representative demonstrating discipleship trust. Now these passages and others in the Scriptures are litmus tests. They are descriptions of what a disciple of Christ looks like. They are sources of questions that you and I can ask to test ourselves as Paul commands us to test ourselves in 2 Corinthians 13.5. So then I've got a question. If this is true, does the Scriptures then teach a gospel salvation by works? Not at all. How so? If you are a disciple of Christ, these conditions will be true of you. God put them in the Bible so that you could know that you are one of Christ because He is the one who works in us to be patient, to be kind, to be poor in spirit. God not only makes the test, but then He makes us so that we can pass the test by His grace. The second stone we must lay in our foundation is that the descriptions of the disciples here in the Beatitudes is not a description of super disciples, super Christians. The ideal is what we Every single believer, every single person who trusts the promises of God must strive by grace. We must strive for these by grace. So, of course, the question is, how do we strive by grace? Well, Jerry Bridges gives us the answer. He says, we believers do need to be challenged to a life of committed discipleship. In other words, we will have to be committed and there will be discipleship involved. But that challenge needs to be based on the gospel, on good news, not on duty or guilt. 
Duty or guilt may motivate us for a while, but only a sense of Christ's love for us will motivate us for a lifetime. Now, fortunately, we at this church have been preaching this message for years, so I'm sure you've got it, but it's helpful to be reminded. Paul talks about Christ's love compelling me to strive by grace as opposed to striving by duty or striving by guilt because it remains true. God's grace is available to everyone. God's grace is even available to you. The Beatitudes, the third stone that we must lay in order to grasp the Beatitudes a little more clearly is that they they begin... And they end with the same blessing. This blessing is, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now this is a big point, and we're going to come back to this throughout our series. Each of the other Beatitudes end in the promise, and that this promise is in the future tense. They shall be comforted. They shall inherit the earth. They shall see God. But both the first and the last Beatitudes claim that the blessing being offered is participation in the kingdom of heaven. Remember, the kingdom of heaven is God's reign available at your fingertips. We are offered His reign, the power of God available to us as close as the tips of our fingers. And that is why Jesus can say, Turn! Turn from your sins and turn to God for the reign of God is available to everyone everywhere. My friends, God's reign in your life is a promise that you can take hold of, that you can grab because it is near you. This is something that you can depend on and live by because you have confidence in the One who promised in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. My friends, you can trust the promises available to you because God's reign is there for you to grasp. You can have confidence that His power, His grace, His peace, His joy and love are as close to you as your fingertips. Now this brings us to our text. Our text today is Matthew 5.3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now I'm taking as my main, st- my main thought for this sermon from this verse, unmasking... Your spiritual poverty, living poor in spirit, reveals extravagant living abundance. Do you recognize in your darkest moments that you have no will, you have no grace, you have no power of yourself to defeat the sin that has defeated you for years? Unmask that spiritual poverty in your best moments so that you will have God's power available to you so that you can fight that sin in your darkest moments. Do you know spiritual poverty? Do you know that you have nothing within you or about you that would attract any kind of gift from God? My friends, this is the confession that I have nothing 
but you. This is the confession that opens the gates of heaven and opens the path of life on earth that will lead you through the valley of the shadow of death until you defeat that final enemy. Do you understand that extravagant, liberal, glorious abundance for living is waiting to be revealed to you now, right there, available at your fingertips? Jesus says in the next chapter, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things shall be added to you. Unmasking your spiritual poverty reveals extravagant all things that pertain to life and godliness in glorious abundance. So let's look at our verse again. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If we're going to understand this verse, what we always need to do whenever we're looking at a verse in the Bible is to look at the context. And depending on what you're looking at, sometimes the context is right next to it, sometimes the context is far away. What I would like to look at is what might Jesus have been looking at that would have made him say something so outrageous as blessed are the poor in spirit. Well, my answer is he would have been looking at the scriptures. He would have been looking at what we call the Old Testament. I think Jesus may have taken his cue on what poor in spirit means from Isaiah. Isaiah 57 verse 15 for thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. In other words, he's transcendent. We can't get to him. We can't get up that high. This is the God who is talking. And he even says, I dwell in the high and holy place. Okay, God, we get it. We can't get to you. But what does he say next? And I dwell also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Wow! That's unexpected. That's, that's odd. Let's read that again. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of of the contrite. God dwells. Okay, we get this. He dwells in the high and holy. But God also dwells with Him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. Are you talking about that lady over there who won't even lift her eyes to heaven, but beats her breasts and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner? And well, she should because everybody around her knows that she's a sinner? Oh, yeah. God dwells with that person when they turn to God and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You see, being poor in spirit cuts in two different directions. Being poor in spirit says, I am a sinner who needs God's mercy. Amen? Everybody here, we've got that right. But being poor in spirit cuts the other way. I am a sinner who needs to give God's mercy as well. And that was why the tax collector and not the Pharisee received the mercy. 
But now we need to find out what it means to be poor in spirit. The first is, what does it not mean to be poor in spirit? And I'm going to go through this quickly. The poor in spirit are not wimpy pushovers. Glenn says, we might think that to be poor in spirit means that you are shy, timid, hesitant, nervous, insecure, reserved, or cowardly. But this is not true. Obsequious whiners are not poor in spirit. And we'll see an example of this in a moment. Just the opposite of this. Instead, Jesus had something very specific in mind. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? I think Martin Lloyd-Jones gave a great definition. It means a complete absence of pride. A complete absence of self-assurance and self-reliance. It means a conscientious It means a consciousness that we are nothing in the presence of God. It is nothing then that we can produce. It is nothing that we can do in ourselves. It is just this tremendous awareness of our utter nothingness as we come face to face with God. That is what it means to be poor in spirit. You and I of ourselves have nothing to offer God. That's the starting place. That is the place that we must begin so that now we can hear the good news. As I said, this is a pretty standard definition on what it means to be poor in spirit. But I like this next definition because it emphasizes those things that we must fight against. It emphasizes those things that tempt us to believe that we are rich in spirit. Gary Tyrus says this, he says, Jesus' followers must recognize a radical need for God in their lives rather than assume that material things can provide soul satisfaction. Do you need me to read that again? Rather than assume that material things can provide soul satisfaction. What are we so often tempted to chase after? Material things. Or that they can live truly God-pleasing lives on their own strength. Oh my Lord, do I? my heart need to hear that. Because I'm feeling guilty if I don't do a 45-minute devotional in the morning instead of a 5-minute devotional. That they can believe that they are truly God-pleasing lives on their own strength and on the basis of their own resources. Don't believe the lie that all is well with you because you have stuff, health, relationships, a 401k, or a good devotional plan. Trust in God and your relationship with Him that He will carry you through the loss of all those things because you will lose them as your life goes on. You will lose them. Instead... By unmasking your spiritual poverty, you are actually revealing extravagant, wonderful, glorious, unknown, uncomprehendable living abundance. So we have to ask our last question. How does someone become poor in spirit? How does one therefore become poor in spirit? The answer is that you do not look at yourself or begin by trying to do things of yourself. Oh my goodness. What did we learn from the name I can't pronounce, Pastor Benji? Uh, He's in um, Chavikian... Yeah, yeah. Um, The more that I obsess with become spiritually um, 
the word just fell out of my head. I, I practiced this earlier and I messed it up. But let's listen to what Martin Lloyd-Jones said because he, he did it well. No, no, no. The more you do that, the more conscious you will be of yourself and the less poor in spirit. The way to become poor in spirit is to look at God. Read this book about Him. Read His law. Look at what He expects from us. Contemplate standing before Him. It is also to look at the Lord Jesus Christ and to view Him as we see Him in the Gospels. This morning, uh, this afternoon, we were meeting with all of our boys. Uh, several of us are doing some devotional work with our boys. And one of the things that we said is, how do we get God's Word into our hearts? And one of my favorite ways, and when I have people who are brand new to the Bible or they've never done devotions, and they say, what do I do? One chapter a day. Start in Matthew 1. Go to the end of Acts. Go back to Matthew 1. Go to the end of Acts. Go back to Matthew 1. And you get Jesus into your mind and into your heart. Again, as we put it last week, don't seek to be poor in spirit. Seek Jesus. Because that is how you will become poor in spirit. Now, you have to say though, oh my goodness, how much more opposite can we get from this current cult of self-esteem that has been brewing and drowning us in the West for the last 40 years? Ironically, Christian, the only verse in the Bible where you will find self and esteem in the same place is in Philippians 2.3. In the King James Version, it says, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. There's your self-esteem. Wait, what? This is so opposite of what we would expect. We expect God to make much of us, don't we? Ouch. But according to Jonathan Edwards, this love, this is the love of the hypocrite. Loving God because he would make much of us. He says the hypocrites first rejoice that they are made so much of by God. And then on that ground, he seems in a sort lovely to him. Augustine adds this along the same idea. He loves thee too little who loves anything together with thee which he loves not for thy sake. The point is, God does make much of us, but He does make much of us because it's His glory, not because of our deserts. You are rich in spirit when you think only of how God should bless you. You are poor in spirit when your natural tendency to love yourself is crucified and you lay yourself open to the one who is willing to love you as you are with absolutely nothing to offer. Now, this is a hard word. Who can hear it? Glenn tells us why we don't like this kind of preaching. He says, think about how crazy it is to admit that you are a deeply flawed person in desperate need of divine intervention. Unless you know the gospel of God's grace. Because in the kingdom of Bob, Robert Glenn, or of Greg, it is dangerous, no treasonous, to confess weakness. Seeing myself as I am is scary because I will 
undoubtedly find problems with the ruler of my kingdom. Problems that I cannot fix. And when you come to that place, then you will be poor in spirit. And that is the requisite. That is the requirement of having all the riches and power and grace and mercy of the kingdom of heaven at your fingertips. Unmasking your spiritual poverty reveals extravagant living abundance. Now, I have avoided until right now expanding on the last half of this statement. Unmasking our spiritual poverty reveals extravagant living abundance. Once you recognize that in and of yourself you have nothing to offer God, then the floodgates of heaven are available and are opened and you are given that abundance. Watch out. Not of things, because the most important things in life are not things. Amen? But we are given an abundance of that which enables us to live through prosperity and poverty. That is, we are given abundance of God's promises. One of my favorite Favorite verses, and the first one you ever heard me preach on was 2 Peter 1, 3, and 4. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. How does He give us this power? Through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. And how do we know this? By which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises. So that, through these promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. You have available all of the promises of God for you in Christ to empower you to live through the best of times and the worst of times. Trust those promises. Chase after Jesus. Run after Jesus with all your might. Because then you will learn to be poor in spirit. Recognize your poverty then. Celebrate it even. Because this poverty makes you eligible to receive God's kingdom by the grace of Jesus Christ. He alone can give you the kingdom you so desperately need. What marks kingdom people as genuine Christians, says Glenn, is that they keep coming back to this one thing. The inexhaustible grace of God. Knowing that it is all we have, and in fact, it is all we need. Unmasking your spiritual poverty reveals extravagant living abundance. In 1932, a 30-year-old English spinster, we thought that was a fun word, but I know it's not a very happy one. This English spinster decided to trade in her housemaid's apron and travel to China to serve the Lord there. She was turned down by the China Inland Mission because she was too old to learn Chinese. She was turned down by someone else because she was uneducated. She was told that she couldn't go to China by yet someone else because her working class background would not be able to support her. 
Instead of acquiescing and tying that apron on again, Gladys gathered enough money to travel across Siberia into, through, and away from a war zone and finally found the woman that she was looking for who owned the Inn of Eighth Happiness. Yes, the Bergman film got the name wrong. In China, Gladys Aylward became a hero among the people and sacrificed greatly to advance the kingdom of God. Now that's fine, but I want to tell you why I'm using her as an example of someone who is poor in spirit. It was because of her fearless dependence upon God and not her dependence on herself, not her dependence on individual people, and certainly not her dependence on institutions, because they all turned her down. She was not dependent on what they can do for her, but she depended on what God could do. She looked to God, not her own resources. She sought Jesus. She ran after Jesus. She chased Him all the way across Siberia. And because she sought Jesus and not poorness of spirit, she was the one who lived unmasking her own spiritual poverty and revealing untold, unimaginable, unbelievably extravagant living abundance. Would that we would live that way. And Lord, let us live that way. Continue, Lord, to give us examples like Gladys Aylward. And Lord, let us read her biographies over and over again. Uh, Lord, so that we can be encouraged to take great risks of faith because we trust in You and we know that You will come through. Bless us, Jesus, so that we will be a blessing. In Jesus' name, Amen.